Way to go, graduating seniors. I'm proud of you guys. Hey, before I read scripture, I just wanted to mention that there is a table in the foyer that uh, with rooted material, rooted is kind of our core discipleship experience here at Faith. And so if you have an interest in that, the next course starts two Tuesdays from now on May 25th. Uh, the table's in the foyer. Stop by and uh, get more information after the service if you'd like. If you are able, I would invite you to stand with me. I'm going to be reading today. Our passage is 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3. John writes this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you, sh- you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is God's word. Please be seated. So believe it or not, I still keep in touch with three of my teachers from high school. Uh, My math teacher, Mrs. Gregg, uh, my English teacher, Mrs. Nicholson, and my Latin teacher, Mrs. Ratliff. That's my mom, right? So this past week, I called Miss Nicholson. Uh, we like to keep current on each other's lives, and we talk about former classmates. And uh, one of the things we talked about was an event that we both remember very distinctly. It happened on May the 7th of 1975. Okay, I was in 10th grade, so you can do the math later. But on, on May the 7th, 1975... It was just before noon, and in a matter of minutes, these thick, dark clouds rolled in, and they piled up tens of thousands of feet to where it became as dark as night. I mean, it was like in the middle of the day. The the, uh, streetlights came on. It started raining. It started hailing, like hail the size of potatoes. And then the power went out in our school, and so we were all huddled into the the central hallway uh, there in our 10th grade class. And we were all afraid, you know, but one of my classmates just started screaming, it's the end of the world, it's the end of the world, and apparently all over town people were, had the same thought, this is the apocalypse, I mean, this is it, it's all over here and now. Well, it turns out that was not the case, you knew that, but that experience we had has similarities to what the scripture tells us it's going to be like when this final chapter in human history is over and Jesus returns. So we're not told everything we might want to know, but we are told that when Christ returns, it's going to be sudden and unexpected, right? Jesus says it's going to be like a a thief in the night. So a thief doesn't call you up and say, hey, two days from now, one in the morning, I'm coming to your back door. No, it's sudden, it's unexpected. The other thing is that it's undeniable, nobody's going to miss it. Jesus said it's going to be like lightning flashing from east to west. And so just like that day, it was undeniable. And so you may wonder um, why we're told so much about 
the return of Christ. Actually, in 20 out of 27 books in the New Testament, the return of Christ is mentioned. So it's not some obscure doctrine that just given to us, to us so we can have something to argue about over Thanksgiving dinner. It's, it's, we're, we're told this, that Christ is, rec- is coming suddenly, unexpectedly, undeniably, so that we'll live our lives in such a way that whether it's this afternoon or 10 years from now, we'll be ready. Okay, That's why we're told about it. And so today's passage, John mentions the core thing we need to do if we want to be ready on that day, if we want to have confidence at Christ's return. There's one command in this passage, it's in verse 28, John says, and now little children abide in him, abide in him. We talked about abiding last week, it was in last week's passage, and John told us that if, if, uh, if the word of Christ abides in us, the gospel and the scriptures more generally, if it abides in us, occupies this prominent place in our lives, then we will abide in the Son and in the Father. And so that's what John is urging on us here. And uh, when we abide, we're not like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. We're not running away from home. We're not convinced there's something better out there somewhere else. No, we stay home and we love being home. If we abide in Christ, we're not like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He was physically home. He stayed home in body. And man, he didn't like being there. He had this grudge against the father. He sure didn't like his little brother. And so if we abide, we will stay home and we will love staying home with the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And so in today's passage, John tells us three benefits of abiding. And as we consider these benefits, remember that, that everything we're going to be talking about, it really flows from Christ. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abide in you, I uh, said, abide in me, let my word abide in you. Apart from me, you can do nothing like a branch lying on the ground. It doesn't get any nourishment. It doesn't get any life from the tree. The same way as we abide in him, the life of Christ flows through us. And we experience the things that we're talking about. The more, we, the more fervently we abide in Christ, the more we'll experience these benefits. So let's consider them one at a time. Uh, benefits of abiding in Christ. The first benefit John mentions is confidence and not shame when Christ appears. Notice how John expresses himself in verse 28. He says, and now little children, I'm writing you as your spiritual father. I love you. I care about you. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. And so the term appears reflects that, that the teaching that Jesus will return suddenly. He won't be there, and then he will be visible. He will appear. He's coming at a time when we don't understand it, but when he comes, we don't anticipate, but when he comes... It will be sudden. And John says that if we abide, that's it. If we abide, we will be confident on that day. Now, I want you to think with me why that would be the case. Well, when Christ appears, we'll see him face to face, and there will be absolutely nowhere to hide, okay? If we abide in Christ in this life, we're not hiding from him. We're walking in the light We're coming face to face with Jesus already. We're staying as close to him as possible. 
And so when Christ returns and we see him face to face, it's just more of the same. And so if we're abiding now, we can have confidence when he appears. Over in chapter 4, John will say that if we abide in God and we abide in his love, we have confidence in the day of judgment and not fear. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. If we're abiding in Christ's love, we have nothing to fear, honestly. By contrast, John suggests that if we're not abiding in him, that we will, quote, shrink back from him in shame at his coming. And shame is a hard thing to talk about. It's hard to understand. I don't understand everything there is to know, obviously, about shame. Uh, but the Bible talks about it in a very specific way. And so I think what John is, is saying, well, I'll tell you what I think he's saying. There, there's a sense in which those that reject Christ in this life, when Christ returns, they will shrink back from him in shame in a very absolute and catastrophic sense, okay? But John is talking about believers here. He's, he's talking to believers, and he's talking about genuine believers uh, shrinking back in shame. And I think he's saying there that our lack of abiding will result in shame when he appears. And I would think that our shame would be proportional to our lack of abiding. Now, of course, there's a toxic, unhealthy shame, and that's not what John's talking about. There's a kind of toxic, unhealthy shame that's based on lies, pure lies. So when we believe these things about ourselves that are not true, we experience shame. I'm not worthy. I'll never be worthy. God doesn't love me. God doesn't want me. God will never want me. Those types of things are, are, are not what John is talking about. John's talking about a healthy type of shame. You find it in the Psalms pretty often, actually. And that's the case that when our consciences are intact and we do things that uh, offend God, that there's an appropriate type of shame. It's a type of shame that humbles us. And if we're, we're abiding in Christ, it melts our hearts and it makes us come back into the light and we confess our sin to him and we're cleansed all over again. And so when we're walking with Christ, any shame we experience, it's, kind of, it's not the same exactly as guilt, but it's shame that drives us back to Christ, repentance. It's not this crippling condemnation that false shame or toxic shame can, can uh, produce. And so uh, healthy shame, if our conscience is intact, conscience is intact it, it brings us back to Christ to experience healing. So why would it be the case that if we don't abide in Christ, that we will shrink from him in shame at his coming? Well, I think it's basically just a, a relational reality. This is what happens in, in all relationships, actually. Uh, if instead of abiding in Christ, I've been hiding from Christ, because I don't want to see Christ face to face, I don't want to make eye contact with him, and he appears, then shame is just the natural consequence of that. I've not trusted him. I've not received from him everything he wanted. I've been holding out on him. I haven't been coming back into the light the way he desires. In that moment, we'll see him as he is. And all of our excuses, all of our rationalizations will absolutely melt away. We'll have this sense, what was I thinking? Why didn't I stay in the light? Why didn't I stay home? Why didn't I love staying home? What's interesting, again, is the remedy. The remedy is simply abide in him. 
That's it. We want no shame when he returns. Abide in Christ. Stay with him. Dwell in his presence. Stay home. Love being home with God, the Spirit, and with Jesus. The next two verses, we see the second benefit of abiding in Christ, and that's confidence of being God's children. And in these verses, John talks about the, the reality of being born of God. So if you're born of someone, uh, that's your parent. You, you, you were a child of that person. He talks about being children of God. And again, it's so easy for us to turn these things into commands, but there aren't any commands in this, in this, this uh, portion of Scripture. John simply wants us to be sure of what is already true of us as believers. The more we abide in Christ, the more we'll experience what John is describing. He says, if you know that he is righteous, verse 29, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so what John writes here reflects the the reality that if you are born of God, something so miraculous happens that your life has changed. You become a new creature in Christ. You have new appetites. You have new desires. And it, it ultimately causes us to act differently. Consequently, you take on the family resemblance. You begin to look like your heavenly father. And specifically, he mentions here righteousness. If we know that he is righteous, he says, you can just be absolutely sure that those who are born of him Practice righteousness. And many times, when, especially when Paul uses the term righteousness, he's talking about a right standing with God, but here he's talking about right behavior. He's talking about practicing what is right, right living uh, in this life. And John's rather nuanced in what he writes here. He says, if you know that God is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, present tense, has been, past tense, has been born of him. And so being born in his family comes first, and then practicing righteousness. And so practicing righteousness doesn't make us believers. It's evidence that we have already been born of God. And so John is very, very clear about this. Of course, in this life, our righteousness is flawed and imperfect, but it's it's surely observable. You just don't find genuine believers where other people look at your life and say, I see no evidence whatsoever that you know God. I know you go to church, but I don't see any family resemblance with God who is righteous. And so our practice of righteousness, again, is proportional to our abiding. The more we abide in him, the more we'll take on the family resemblance. Look at 3.1. This is amazing. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God and so we are. And so the love that God has given us, it doesn't merely make us his property or his slaves or his foot soldiers. No, he says, see what type of love God has given us? It actually makes us children of his. That's the type of love he's given us. And so think about a child who is alone, maybe a child that... that uh, uh, doesn't have anywhere to go. I mean, it would be compassion if you would, you would find that child a place to live. You would encourage that child. You might even pay the expenses of that child. But it would take it to a whole other level if you said to that child, actually, I want you to be part of my household. 
I want you to be mine. I'm not talking about a second-class member of this family. I want you to come. I want you to be part of this household with all the privileges, all the responsibilities that it involves. But you're not second-class. Everything I have is yours. And some of you actually done that. Amazing expression of love. John wants us to know that that is the type of love that the Father has given us. He says, not just that we should be called children of God, but so are we. We are children of God. As we abide in Christ and let his words abide in us, the truth that we're children of God, it goes from our heads to our hearts. And then in the last line of verse 1, John says there, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And so... Just making an observation here. This was true of Jesus. Jesus said, they're going to treat you the way they treated me. And so uh, people in the world, they don't come to you. They, they don't come to you and say, man, I can just see the family resemblance. You obviously are a true son, a true daughter of the one true living God. I mean, it's just obvious. I see it from your life. No, they don't really recognize that. They say, you're real spiritual, aren't you? You're religious. I see your car going out the driveway on Sunday morning. <laughs> you, must be, you must be a church person, right? That's more the observation. So John says, understand it. This comes with the territory. If you're a child of God, don't expect the world's applause. The third benefit of abiding, uh, John has us consider once again the return of Christ. And he talks here about confidence of becoming like Christ when he appears. And so John mentions what we now are, and then he mentions what we will be when Christ appears. In verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. And so we don't know everything we'd like to know about what will be true when Christ returns, when he appears. But we do know something. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so, uh, as we abide in Christ in this life, we progressively become conformed to the image of Christ. Sometimes that's called sanctification. So, we're, we're with Christ, we're abiding in Christ, we're becoming like Christ, and then when he returns, it's like it's this instantaneous sanctification is realized. We become like him because we see him as he is. And so we are like Christ. We're told we're like him in body. We have a resurrected body akin to his. It's glorious. It's powerful. And we are are transformed in spirit. Sometimes it's called the the unholy trinity, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That trinity will be gone. The things that just just uh, mire us down, slow us down, trip us up. That's, That's why we have this struggle in this life the flesh, the devil, and the world. That will be gone. We will will see Christ, and we will be like Christ. And when John says that we know this, he's talking about more than information, okay? He's not talking about data. He's not saying you can file this in your brain. Yes, I uh, realize that when Christ returns, I shall be just like him. Check, got it. No, he's talking about on a deep level. You know that to a place experientially, you, you, it, it changes your experience. You are so convinced of that. And the next verse, he calls it our hope, okay? And, and hope is kind of a weak term in, 
in our culture, you hope for something, you wish for something, but biblically speaking, a hope is a certainty about the future. And in verse 3 there, John says, and everyone who thus hopes, people who are counting on the fact that we will be like Christ when he appears, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so here's the mindset. And so the person who abides in Christ, this is the way they think. Okay, Christ is pure. I know that. There's no pollution. There's no contamination in him. He is pure. And I know that when he appears, I will be like him and I too will be pure. All the impurities will be gone. I will be conformed to the image of Christ in ways I never even fathom. Since I'm convinced of that, since I, have, I am banking on that, I'm, taking, I'm betting the whole farm on that, then I'm going to purify myself. I want to be like that when he returns. Actually, I want to be like that now. And so we engage our wills and we trust God to purify us in this life. And so again, we won't think anything like that unless we abide in Christ and let his words abide in us. Through abiding, facts about, about Christ become these precious truths that motivate us and animate our lives. And so again, I have to say it one more time, uh, this is not a command, okay? John is not commanding us, okay, people, Jesus is coming back, he's pure, purify yourselves, okay? And he's not saying, okay, you're children of God, how about we start acting like it, okay? He's not saying, if you don't want shame at the, at the return of Christ, get your act together and start practicing righteousness, Although I wouldn't say it that way, but we should do those things, right? The sole command in this passage is abide. Abide in him, and these things will be true of you. You will have this internal motivation. These things will be true of you. You know, someone who exemplified what John is describing in this passage, I think, is uh, Dallas Willard. Many of you know his writings but he died in 2013 after a year-long battle with pancreatic cancer. When he was diagnosed in 2012, he did an interview. And uh, this is what Dallas said. And Dallas actually preached at Faith in the early 90s. Some of you all remember that. He was in town. He wasn't world famous then. But he preached at Faith, and I had the privilege of taking a, a class with him and being with him a few times. But Dallas said this in 2012, a year before he died. He said, I think that when I die, it might be some time until I know it. He says, I think that when I die, it might be some time before I know it. I'm like, who, who says that? I mean, who would even think of that? Who would, have, who would talk about that type of continuity? Well, somebody who's abiding in Christ someone whose entire being is committed to staying close to Christ and not running away, but staying in the light, confessing sin, fresh, fresh cleansing from God. So I'm just amazed by that. You know, that's what I want for myself. I want that type of continuity from this life to the next. And honestly, I want nothing more than that type of abiding, that type of continuity for every single one of you. 
And so, little children, little children, abide in him. Abide in him. If you, if you abide in him, you have zero to worry about. Zero fear at his coming. Abide in him. Father, we ask that you would give us this vision for abiding in Christ. God, we confess that sometimes we just, we're just convinced that there are better ways, there are other things that would satisfy us, satisfy us more than you. God, remind us, convince us. May we speak the truth to one another so that we know that's a lie. We pray, God, that we would abide in you. Let your words abide in us. God, we want that confidence in this life and at Christ's return. God, we want to anticipate his return. And so, God, would you do this work in our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray.